let's uh, start our time before the Lord this morning with prayer again. Lord God, we thank you again for bringing us here together this morning, Lord. We thank you that in spite of all of our sin, all of our failures this week, Lord God, all of our apathy toward you, the ways that we have taken the good gifts you've given us for granted, Lord, the ways that we've treated one another that we ought not to have treated them, Lord, the ways that we've been vain and self-centered and self-seeking, seeking ourselves and not you. And we thank you, Lord, that in spite of all of this, you have called us for yourself. You have redeemed us through the finished work of your Son on the cross. You have taken away our sin and replaced it with your Son, Jesus' righteousness, Lord God. We thank you for the chance to remember that today. We pray now, Lord, that you would give us open ears and open hearts to hear your word. We pray that you would take our eyes off of ourselves and put them on you. We do again remember the Smith family, Lord, and ask for your hand of mercy and grace and compassion and to be with them, Lord. May they know that you are with them this day and this week and this month and this year. We pray this, Lord, in the name of your Son, Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. So when I was a teenager, there were two things that you could figure out about me pretty quickly. The first is that I like to be in charge, in control of my environment. I wanted to know exactly what to expect, when it was going to happen. The second thing was that I really, really cared about my self-image. What people thought of me mattered to me greatly. And so one night when my mom told me that I'd be going out with her in the evening for a surprise trip, I wasn't happy. I tried and tried to get her to tell me where we were going and what we were doing, but she wouldn't. Instead of getting excited at the thought of a night out with her, I got mad. I was irritated and surly. And when we finally pulled out of our driveway in our car and mom told me where we were going to see a production of one of my favorite plays and have dinner beforehand at a fancy restaurant, I was too grumpy to fully enjoy it. I'd taken my mom's love and generosity for granted. And I was too upset at tarnishing my self-sufficient self-image because in order to enjoy that evening with her. I couldn't even believe that she had a good plan in mind because all that I could think about was that the world wasn't going my way. I was struggling with apathy, vanity, and unbelief. Do you struggle with apathy? Have you lost the ability to be amazed with the people and circumstances God has put into your life? How about your relationships? Do you take your kids your siblings, and your friends for granted. What about your marriage? What about Jesus? Does his work on the cross on your behalf still cause you to marvel? Do you struggle with vanity? Do you care more about how people see you than about how God sees you? Does your concern for other people go beyond what they can do for you, how they can make your life better, 
how they can make you look better? What about Jesus? Have you spent more time this week focused on your own self-image or on honoring Him? Do you struggle with unbelief? Does the truth about who God is and what He has done for you matter in your day-to-day life? Does that truth live only up here in your head? Or is it actively changing your life? What about Jesus? Are you indifferent to Him? Or do you truly believe that who He is and what He says? If you're like me, apathy, vanity, and unbelief aren't attitudes you left behind in your teenage years. They're sins that you struggle with regularly. The good news for all of us is that there is hope. Jesus can replace our apathy with marvel, our vanity with honor for Him, and our unbelief with belief. But for Him to do that, we first need to hear about who He is and what He has to say about Himself. I would invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning with me to the Gospel of John chapter 5. John 5. Last week, Wolf told us about how Jesus had healed a man who was paralyzed for 38 years. 38 years! Imagine that! And Jesus just healed him with a word, a single word. How do you think the leaders of the people of Israel, the Jewish scribes and Pharisees, responded to this miraculous healing? They didn't respond with marvel, honor, and belief. Instead, they were upset and charged Jesus with working on the Sabbath. As Wolf was sharing with us last week, Jesus countered this charge with a claim that he himself was the Lord of the Sabbath. He was the Son of God. This was too much for the Pharisees to take. They wanted to kill him. Today, we get to learn what Jesus said to those leaders and how he called them to respond. But Jesus is also asking for a response from you. In our passage today, Jesus confirms that he is the Son of God. And if he is, if Jesus is truly the Son of God, then we need to respond with, to him with marvel, honor, and belief. Let's begin reading in chapter 5, verse 18, here in verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. Here's our first point. If Jesus is truly the Son of God, His works should make us marvel at Him. As He begins to respond to these Jewish leaders who want to kill Him, Jesus is careful not to answer them directly. We know that Jesus has told others who He is. He told the woman at the well, point blank, that He is the Christ, the Messiah. But here He begins 
indirectly by describing who the Son of God is. Jesus says that the Son can only do what He sees the Father doing. And then He says something remarkable. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. This is amazing. It's equivalent to saying that they're the same being. I have two sons. Both of them love their daddy and want to be just like me. When I'm out working in our yard or fixing something at our house, they're bound to be right there watching what I'm doing, trying their best to copy me. They want to be just like me, but it's pretty clear that they are not me. But Jesus is saying something different about himself and his father. The father has done great and amazing works. They're so awesome, we can't comprehend them. The Bible says that he created the universe, the world, and everything in them. And he is working actively to spread his kingdom in the world and bring his purposes to pass. All of this, Jesus says, the Son does just like the Father. John wrote in chapter 1, verse 3, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And now, Jesus himself is affirming this too. The reason for all of this is because, as he says in verse 20, the Father loves him and shows him all that he himself is doing. Imagine that kind of love, to share in these works of magnificence with the Son. If that wasn't enough, Jesus keeps going. Greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. What does he mean by greater works than these? Jesus has already demonstrated his own power through miraculous works. He's turned water into wine. He's healed an official son from 15 miles away. And he's just healed a man who was crippled for 38 years with a word from his mouth. He's done all of this to glorify his father and show his lordship over the world. What greater works could he have left to accomplish? We don't have to ask because Jesus tells us in verse 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Now, if you've read ahead, you might know how the book of John goes. A few chapters later, the Bible says that Jesus is going to literally raise a dead man to life. That by itself is incredible. It's not something that happens in our day-to-day -day lives. But Jesus is also pointing to something else, something that God alone can do. See, you and I, without Jesus, we are dead in our sins. The wrongs we've done, the thoughts we've thought, we know that these are an affront to a holy and righteous God. No amount of good deeds or clean living can build up a balance in our spiritual bank accounts that would satisfy a holy God. And we can't get out of this condition by ourselves. In our sin, we're as good as dead under God's just condemnation. The only way out for us is if someone comes, takes our dead hearts and souls, and makes them alive again. We can't do this transformation on our own. No one can, except God alone. And this is what should move us from apathy to marvel. 
the all-powerful God of the universe, knew that we were in trouble, that we were dead in our sin before him. He sent his son to save us from that sin, to bring us from death to life. If this is true, if we have been truly saved by his son, this puts everything in our lives into perspective. All of our apathy, all of our indifference to everything around us, all of the puny marvel we like to place in ourselves, God is bringing us from death to life, and that outshines it all. This is what we should marvel at. Point number two. If Jesus is truly the Son of God, His judgment should make us honor Him. His judgment should make us honor Him. Jesus continues to describe the Son of God to the Jewish leaders in verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Right away we see two things that would have astonished the Jewish listeners to Jesus. Number one, the Father has given judgment to the Son. That right there is amazing, given the Old Testament's description of God as a righteous judge himself. Genesis 18.25 tells us, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? 1 Samuel 2.10, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Psalm 96.13, For he comes to judge the earth. And according to Jesus, the Father has given this responsibility of judgment to the Son. But the second thing he says is even more amazing. All must honor the Son just as they honor the Father. The Bible says that God, as the sovereign Lord and creator of the world, is the only one worthy of our worship and our praise. Isaiah 42 says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. In Exodus 34, we read, You shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. So if it wasn't clear before, it is now. When he's talking about the Father and the Son, Jesus is not talking about two separate beings. If the Son has the authority to judge, and the Father and the Son are worthy of the same honor, they must be one And the same, in making these statements of equality, Jesus is saying that the Father and the Son are one, one God. Jesus keeps going in verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Do you see how Jesus has shifted here? He's not talking about the Son anymore. He's talking about Himself. He's now clearly describing Himself. But but He said the word judgment. What is this judgment that He's talking about? Verse 25 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, says Jesus, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in Himself, so He has granted the Son to have life in Himself. 
and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This coming judgment reminds me of one of my favorite street evangelists, Johnny Cash. He wrote a song I think is profound called The Man Comes Around. In it, Johnny Cash sings, there's a man going round taking names, and he decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody won't be treated all the same. There'll be a golden ladder reaching down when the man comes around. Think about that. Everybody won't be treated all the same. That's what Jesus is saying here. One day in an hour that's coming, the Son of Man will separate everyone into two groups, those to be resurrected in life and those to be resurrected in judgment. Is Jesus telling us that it's up to us to earn our own salvation by doing good? No! Jesus just told us in verse 24, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. That's it. That's all you need to do. Hear and believe. Ask God to do what only he can do. Transform your unbelieving heart by the power of the Holy Spirit to honor Jesus and believe in him for your salvation. Jesus is also telling us that the consequences for unbelief are very real. As Pastor Bill likes to say sometimes, Jesus' words here shimmer. They apply to the final judgment at the end of time when the Son will judge everyone for eternity. We read in Isaiah 26, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. In the book of Revelation, chapter 20 says, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were open, and the dead were judged by what is in the books, according to what they had done. But Jesus' words also apply to the here and now. It's not just the physically dead that the Son of God will bring to life. When Jesus says those who hear will live, he's also talking about those who are dead spiritually. The Apostle Paul writes in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, and you, speaking of believers, those who've heard Jesus' words, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. There is only one way to obtain this resurrection of life. Jesus is telling us, it's me Hear me, believe in me, and you will be saved. Friends, honoring Jesus is truly the solution for our vanity. How could we possibly continue in our obsession with seeking honor and praise from people? 
Jesus is saying all that honor, all that praise you love to get from people, it doesn't matter at all eternally. It's completely irrelevant. What matters is that you have a problem. Your own vain self-promotion, seeking the glory that comes from man and not the glory that comes from God, that's enough to condemn you by the standards of a perfectly holy, perfectly righteous judge. You are truly dead in your sins. Instead of seeking honor from others, honor the Son. Acknowledge that He and He alone is the judge of the world and hear Him, believe Him, honor the one in whom is eternal life. We've seen that the Son of God is worthy of our marvel and He's worthy of our honor. And if we follow Jesus' discourse closely, His conclusion is inescapable. He is the Son of God. But you and I know that anyone can talk Anyone can say these things. How do we know that Jesus is telling the truth? This is point number three. If Jesus is truly the Son of God, His witnesses compel us to believe. If He is truly God's Son, there must be witnesses to Him, people who can confirm who He is and what He's claiming. Jesus knows that the Jewish leaders won't take him on his word either. They will demand proof. So he says in verse 31, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. We'll come back to this other in a moment. Before that, though, Jesus introduces his second witness, someone whom the Pharisees would have known well. Verse 35 says, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. We might know that Jesus here is talking about John the Baptist. John had a thriving ministry that the Pharisees investigated. At first, they were excited to see him. They thought that he might be the promised prophet heralding the Messiah who would come and lead Israel back to political glory. But what did John actually say to the Pharisees? What was he all about? Back in John chapter 1, we read, he saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Jesus keeps going in verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. Greater than John's. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, they bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus' works, his miraculous deeds, were causing a sensation everywhere. Even though the Pharisees didn't acknowledge it publicly, they admitted it privately. When Nicodemus the Pharisee came to see Jesus in chapter 3, he admitted, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. If John the Baptist and Jesus' works weren't enough, Jesus now introduces his third witness, God the Father. In verse 37, he says, 
And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you, Pharisees, have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Truly, God himself should be the ultimate witness. If God affirms something is true, what other proof could you need? And in fact, God has confirmed that Jesus is his son. In Matthew 3, 17, God spoke from heaven, This is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. But the Pharisees just can't accept this. To do that, they would have needed God's truth in them, and Jesus says they just don't have it. But what do they have? What do they know, backwards and forwards? They know the holy words of God, the Scriptures. And that is Jesus' fourth witness. Verse 39, Jesus says, You search the Scriptures because in them you think that you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Hmm. If the Scriptures bear witness to Jesus, well, why don't the Pharisees believe him? Jesus has the answer in verse 41. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? That's the reason. The Pharisees don't believe Jesus because they don't seek God's glory. They are seeking their own. Even though they were filled with excitement and anticipation when they thought the Messiah was here, they dismissed the idea of Jesus as the promised one, and now they want to kill him. The reason was because instead of seeking God's glory, they desired glory, praise, recognition, affirmation, commendation, reputation from each other. How each of them wants to be known for their skill with words, their prayers, their knowledge of Scripture. It's easy for us to condemn these Pharisees, but ask yourself, do you desire glory? How badly do you want to be known and elevated in the minds of others, your parents, your children, your spouse, your co-workers, and your friends? How often have you sought that recognition for yourself instead of the glory of God that people honor and marvel at you? Ooh, that's uncomfortable. That's hard for me, too. I've struggled with that my entire life. Jesus has one more witness to bring to the stand. And for these Jewish leaders, he's the ultimate witness. Verse 45 says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Jesus is completely subverting the Pharisees' worldview here. He's pulling the rug out from under them. 
What did Moses write about Jesus? Everything. Moses, the man of God, the scribe of God's law, the mediator between God and the ancient Israelites, repeatedly pointed to Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God. In Genesis 3.15 we read, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The Messiah is the head crusher. He'll crush Satan, the serpent, to death. Genesis 12.3 says, In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. The Messiah is in the line of Abraham. God will bless the world through him. In Genesis 49, we read, The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The Messiah, born of the tribe of Judah, is the eternal ruler of God's people. In Numbers 21, 8-9, the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Like that bronze serpent, pardon me, the Messiah would be raised up on a cross. All who look on him will believe, to believe will be saved. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses wrote, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. The Messiah is the promised prophet from God for all time. Moses wrote all of this about the coming Messiah. And if Jesus is truly the Son of God, if he is the promised Messiah, the Savior of Israel and the whole world, all of these things are true about him. And all of these witnesses should compel us to believe. Do you still not believe in Jesus? Today, God is calling you to respond. Right now, He is telling you who His Son is, the Savior of the world. Jesus stands ready to save you if you just look to Him and believe His name. Will you respond as the Pharisees did, rejecting this man and his outrageous claims? Or will you respond as Jesus beckons you with a softening of your heart, repentance of your sins, and belief in Him? I'd invite the worship team to please come up. What about those of us who do believe what Jesus is saying, but continue to struggle with apathy, vanity, and unbelief? People like me. Jesus is calling us to respond too. He's calling you to turn from the petty trivialities of life to marvel at Him, the greatest marvel in the universe. He's calling you to stop seeking the honor that comes from people and instead to give that honor to Him. And He is calling you to believe and in believing be changed by the truth of the gospel. The hard part is that this change, this transformation, is not something you can conjure up in yourself by an act of will. It's not something that you can simply choose to be better at. Our Lord, our compassionate and gracious God, knows that no amount of your own effort can change your heart. Only He can do that. 
He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die in your place, taking all of your apathy, your vanity, and your sinful unbelief onto Himself. In exchange, He, His Son, gave you His righteousness. And He is working to make you, Christian, more and more like Himself. Marvel at that. Honor Him and believe in Him with your whole heart. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord God, You know all too well the condition of our hearts apart from You. You know the condition of my heart, Lord. You know how desperately we cling to our own honor and glory. We want other people to honor us, to put us up on pedestals, to listen to us, to be amazed at us, Lord God. And we desire that for ourselves instead of desiring that you be made great. But you knew this, Lord. You knew this and you came. You came and you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die in the, on the cross on our behalf to take that sin upon himself that you would see us as holy and blameless before you because we have been saved by him and have been given his righteousness. Help us, Lord, to remember that, to live in the truth of that, and to seek you, God, with our whole hearts. We need you so badly, Lord. We need you now. We pray these things, Father God, in the name of your Son, Jesus, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.